welcome to Counterpunch Radio and Counterpunch Plus if you're watching on the subscription site. My name is Eric Drazer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. Hope you've had a chance to get that subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That is the way to support Counterpunch, to keep the lights on, to keep this media project going. If you believe in independent media, particularly as big tech and all of the other sectors of capital seem to try to tighten their grip on the flow of information, well, Counterpunch has been around for more than 25 years, and we plan to be around for a lot more years with your support and with your help. Please go to the website, get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. You can read everything that used to be in the print magazine, plus a lot of new content. Jeff Sinclair is churning out content like crazy. All of the archive stuff from two and a half decades of print magazines, including Alexander Coburn's classic columns, all of the other great contributors over the years. You can have access to all of it. Plus these videos that I'm doing with these great guests, get your subscription. What are you waiting for? Go do it now. Um, okay, I am going to end the sales pitch there, and I'm going to turn to my wonderful guest today. Helen Yaffe is with me. She is a lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, specializing in Cuban and Latin American development. And uh, most importantly for our purposes today, she is the author of the excellent recent book, we Are Cuba, How a Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. I would recommend that book as well as a previous book, Che Guevara, The Economics of Revolution. Helen Yaffe, welcome to Counterpunch. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Thank you so much for coming on and for all of your great work. And I want to just jump right into it because the first thing that strikes me when I look at your book, and this is, of course, a little bit about me, but the first thing that strikes me is the title, We Are Cuba. So movie nerd like me, immediately that evokes a tremendous amount of thought. So tell me very quickly, if you could, about the title, how it was chosen, why it was chosen. Well, um, whether you like or don't like the title I can't take entirely the credit I think um, I was struggling with my editor to find a title that was um, not too academic but also encapsulated the topic of the book so that's what we arrived at I think the point um, is that the book tries to present what we can call an imminent critique of Cuba so uh, judging Cuba by the own by its own standards um, trying to assess what they have achieved in development terms um, according to what the objectives were and the challenges that they face. So in that sense, you know, and it's based on um, extensive interviews with Cubans in each of the sectors that I write about. Um, I've tried to find, you know, the, the people most involved, the people playing leading roles, influencing the um, direction and decisions and so on. So um, that was also to capture the sense that this was their voices um, being represented in the book. Absolutely. And of course, uh, I Am Cuba being the famous Soviet Cuban film of the early 1960s, which for a lot of us was maybe the first window we had into uh, something about Cuba. It certainly was for me when I was about 18 years old. So, um, all right, I want to talk a little bit about this book and how it took shape. What was the impetus for writing it? When did this begin? And what were the conditions that sort of drove you to making this into this book project? So, um, well, because I've been engaging with Cuba for a long time, since 1995, when I went to live in Cuba as a teenager. I was 18 and I went with my big sister, no parents and no family uh, beyond that so we just went to 
to live in Cuba. It was 1995. It was um, more or less the, the worst period of what's known as the special period of economic crisis following the collapse of the Soviet bloc, because, of course, uh, nearly 90% of Cuba's trade and investment disappeared practically overnight with the collapse of the Soviet bloc. So, you know, in 1989, Cuba was importing 13 million tonnes of oil from the Soviets. And by 1991, that was 1 million. The next year, it was nothing. So, you know, how do you deal with that kind of crisis? Um, amazing collective creative solutions. Uh, the government policies were always directed with welfare at the centre rather than, you know, opening up to markets and uh, trying to, focusing on GDPs and, and so on. So we we lived in Cuba around that period. The the tide had just turned. The, um, the economy was starting to recover. They were starting to introduce international tourism and so on. Um, and so I've continued my engagement with Cuba. I helped to set up a, a, a youth solidarity group or Rock Around the Blockade, it's called, set up in Britain. Um, we were making links between the way that the British government in 1995 was treating young people. And I don't expect you to remember this, but we had just had this law called um, the Criminal Justice Act, which was criminalising uh, when young people were getting together to listen to music. You know, it was criminalising music specifically of over 180 beats per minute and so on. And at the same time, when um, people who saw the situation Cuba was going through and reached out to the um, Youth Communist uh, League in Cuba or the Union of Young Communists in Cuba and said, what can we do to help? The Union of Young Communists in Cuba said, our young people need music. So it was just an incredible contradiction. On the one hand, in capitalist Britain, you know, they saw youth culture as a threat. And on the other hand, in Cuba, they were trying to, you know, facilitate young people saying, we're, we're struggling, we're going through austerity, economic crisis, but young people have to have the capacity to enjoy themselves, you know, and we, we don't want them to associate um, we don't want to only associate socialism with austerity. So we uh, started raising money to buy sound systems and disco equipment at their request and, and take them out on brigades to Cuba. So my engagement with Cuba continued. And then as um, I started to work on my PhD, which you mentioned because it was published subsequently as Che Guevara, The Economics of Revolution. And I was doing all my archive research out in Cuba um, I managed to interview uh, many times, became great friends with Orlando Borrego, who was Che Guevara's deputy uh, outside of the military field. So he was his number two in the Department of Industrialization, then the Ministry of Industries, before leaving to become um, Cuba's first minister of sugar in a, in a, in a country uh, with a history dominated by sugar. Um, so I was interviewing Borrego and many of the people I, I interviewed, well over 50 um, of the people who'd worked closest to Che Guevara in this field of, uh, you know, transforming the economy. Um, and anyway, so the point is my engagement had continued with Cuba and I, I was aware of these incredible developments that were taking place essentially as, as one... Um, US medical scientist put it to me from the, the Cancer Institute, Roswell Park. He said it was under the radar, these incredible developments. Now, under the radar, partly because 
you know, when I was reading about Cuba in universities, the English language texts are so dominated by a particular interpretation that works within a certain paradigm. And it's, um, you know, very dogmatic. Uh, Cuba is treated as a dogma. And, you know, there's a set series of interpretations. There is no democracy in Cuba. The Castros dominate all decision making. Cuba wouldn't survive without the Soviet Union. So, um, you know, 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, well, then you start to wonder, well, how did they survive? So putting those two, two, two things together, the fact that the Cuban revolution had survived for longer without the Soviet support than it had um, with Soviet support, and then that, you know, undermining that argument. And secondly, these incredible developments in the fields of biotechnology. I mean, Cuba has the world's only lung cancer immunotherapy, uh, they were the first with a meningitis B vaccine back in the 1980s. And meningitis B has continued to kill people all around the world, not just in poor countries throughout Africa, but also in Britain and the United States. Um, Cuba was the first country in the world to complete a transition to energy saving bulbs. They did that within six months. They um, have popped up in numerous reports as world leaders in sustainable development. Uh, you know, scientific reports that are, uh, are um, evaluating on the basis of scientific research. So there's all these incredible aspects of um, Cuban development that had, had taken place under the radar and since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I really wanted to investigate those further and um, bring those to a broader audience because, you know, occasionally the Cubans would pop up in West Africa assisting with the Ebola pandemic and, you know, mainstream media wouldn't know what to make of it. How are the Cubans there? The same with the earthquake in Haiti and so on. So, you know, behind all of these things, there is a story, a story of a strategy at the very early years of the revolution to invest in health and um, education, but also science and technology and um, to, to have a very different set of priorities for their development model. And, and that's what I was interested in. Absolutely. And I want to return to a lot of those topics towards the end of our discussion, uh, thinking about how some of those sectors did develop specifically. But let's take a step back, if we could, and talk a little bit about Cuba before the revolution. Of course, we're talking uh, now, you know, 70 plus years in the past. But what was pre-revolutionary Cuba like? What specifically the material conditions? Who had the wealth? Who owned the land? Was there industry? Where were the masses of people? Uh, tell us a little bit about Cuba so we can get a picture of what the revolution was responding to. Yeah, so even in this area, there's um, a great deal of debate and um, difference in interpretation, which is actually very much politically motivated. So on the one hand, you have those who look at Cuba and say, oh, well, it's GDP per capita was third or fifth in Latin America. Therefore, you know, it was a, a wealthy um, capitalist country. It was about to take off. That's the interpretation of some economic historians. And others say, well, no, because the economy was characterized by a set of crises, structural crises and imbalances. And that is certainly, I think, the situation in Cuba. So um, you have a model, a plantation, slave labor-based model of sugar production, which um, really takes off after the Haitian Revolution, when a lot of the French uh, planters 
move to Cuba and take slaves with them. And then that sees an influx of, um, of more investment in the sugar plantation, an incredible number of slaves taken to Cuba. And even once, you know, with independence in Latin America, you have the abolition of slavery. It takes quite a, quite a couple of decades in some of those countries. But in Cuba, it's sustained. So it's one of the, the hubs of the second slavery. It carries on, of course, in the southern states of the United States and in Brazil. Um, and then you have this interesting dichotomy, which I'm researching as someone who's at the University of Glasgow. It's a, an avenue I'm, I'm really interested in. So you have the sort of um, mechanization of the sugar plantations uh, with machinery, including from Glasgow. So we have, you know, archives full of the account books of Glasgow manufacturers who are sending to Cuba, um, you know, a, a machinery that's associated with the Industrial Revolution, with moving from slave uh, type feudal social relations to capitalist social relations. But in Cuba, it's being used to uh, intensify the exploitation of, you know, um, slave-based production. So you have incredible contradictions uh, built into this model. Some of the characteristics which we see today in Cuba, which seem uh, inexplicable that the revolution hasn't overcome. I'm talking, for example, about the fact that Cuba is so dependent on food imports. Um, but, you know, I've recently started to read up on, on more on that. And you can see that this is one of the legacies of the imposition of the sugar industry, and not just in the interests of um, Cuban sugar elite or the US owners of sugar plantations in, in Cuba, but also in the interests of the uh, lobby of agro-business in the United States that did not want Cuba to have the capacity to produce its basic staples for uh, consumption, for food consumption, because they were benefiting from selling those to Cuba. And everything about the relationship, the trade relationship between Cuba and the United States was highly regulated. So Cuba was subject, like many countries in the, the US sort of peripheral sphere of influence, to a sugar quota, which um, determined how much sugar it could produce and export every year to the United States. But also, you know, uh, the the trade between them was determined by uh, tariff uh, reductions and so on. And, and the US interest came out of those relationships in a more beneficial position. So when the Cuban revolution takes over, you have a lot of structural imbalances. You have, for example, in Cuba, free oil refineries, which are using really high tech, um, you know, um, technology. And um, at the same time, you know, in a sense, they're surrounded by seas of underdevelopment. Um, so the sugar industry dominates employment, but it also dominates um, uh, the, it dominates every form of society. So most of other production is somehow linked to the sugar industry. And sugar industry workers are doing this incredibly tough work with machetes in the searing heat of the Caribbean under the Caribbean sun. And they're working about three to four months uh, for the harvest every year. It's been extended since then, but at that time, that's what it was. And after that, the period where they're laid off and they have no social security, that is the period known as the tiempo muerto, the dead period, you know, or the dead season. And, and you know, they're just basically people are struggling to survive and finding alternative 
um, employment. At the same time, you can look at the statistics. This is why, you know, I always say we have to be very careful of statistics. You can look at the statistics of the number of luxury cars per person in Cuba um, and and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, clearly in Havana, there was a great deal of superficial prosperity. Um, you know, Havana was used as a sort of a holiday resort for uh, U.S. business people, U.S. businessmen, probably predominantly. Um, it was full of casinos and brothels and those those kind of aspects that um, characterize, you know, the, the sort of um, Cuba in, in the 1950s. And they were all very real and they had a very high human cost, which is reflected in the statistics of the number of children in the countryside who were walking around with parasites in their belly, who had no shoes, who had no toilets in their homes, who had no electricity. I mean, an, an incredible, um, the, the number of people in Cuba who had electricity in the countryside was something like 2% of the population. So, you know, this creates phenomenal challenges for the new revolutionary government when they uh, seize state power. Um, it's not just a question of, you know, what do you do with the army and, and Batista and his cronies, although they fled, you know, it's not just a question. There's no immediate um, uh, and easy um, ways of dealing with this. So you, you've promised massive investments in road building, hospital building, schools, um, you know, clinics and so on. But where's the money? The money has literally been packed into suitcases and taken out of the country. Um, so, you know, how are you going to carry out those investments? How do you extend the electricity system to supply it to uh, the people in, in rural areas? So these are all just incredible challenges that are the product of Cuba's status as a colonized nation, then subject to imperialism and a very exploitative relationship, but also with a domestic elite that was um, it's whose position was very much determined by their relationship with U.S. capital and with U.S. interests. Indeed. And to your point about uh, the dependence on food importation, the United States did something very similar in Haiti with rice and rice production, Haiti being dependent upon rice imports from the U.S. when Haiti was a rice exporter for decades and decades. And that policy, of course, extends to Venezuela. It's extended to other countries in Latin America that have also been made dependent upon food imports as a sort of uh, way of tying them to the empire. Now, uh, my question for you then, would be in the uh well actually let me let me just quickly back up how did the attitude towards the united states change in cuba um and what i mean specifically is i know that uh in the late 19th and early 20th century the united states was seen in a much more positive light because of the spanish crown and the spanish being the seat of reaction and cubans many cubans middle class bourgeois cubans saw the u.s as a hope for democracy and 50 years later of course the u.s dominates cuba as an imperial neighbor so how did did that change? Well, I mean, how did it change? Has it changed? I think there's always been different attitudes among Cubans towards the United States, and that has been characterized through history. Um, so, for example, you have the annexationists who, who wanted, uh, who saw that it would be beneficial to themselves and to Cuba if Cuba was annexed formally to the United States. Then you had another group called this sort of autonomists who wanted a relationship with the United States, much like what turned out to be the pseudo-republic, um, but not formally annexed, maybe a politically sovereign 
Um, but, but essentially, you know, in the orbit, very much in the orbit of the United States. And then you had the independentistas, those who wanted uh, complete independence for Cuba, which means economic and political sovereignty. And that was the uh, strand represented very much by Jose Marti, who is known as the national independence hero of Cuba, who helped to um, spark the final war of independence in Cuba, 1895, and then subsequently died uh, very early on in that going into battle. Um, And Jose Marti, there's a... um, you know, Jose Marti is an interesting character because he's claimed by some of the uh, Miami Cubans who, you know, um, who articulate a kind of Cuban nationalism but reject the uh, Cuban revolution and, and socialism. He's also claimed that by the Cuban revolutionary leadership as, you know, they are the legacy of Jose Marti. And so, um, in part, you know, it could depend on which part of his work you take. And there's a very important letter that Marti wrote uh, just before, the night before, I believe, that he goes into battle. And it's an uncompleted letter because he died in battle the next day. But in this letter, he articulates very, very clearly that while the Cuban forces were fighting against the Spanish, they must also beware the imperialist ambitions of the United States. And so that that kind of warning that comes with Marti, and this is obviously before the US, the, the explosion of the main and the US has intervened and so on, that sort of uh, forevision um, of Marti has been integrated into the, was integrated into the revolutionary struggle for some elements in the, you know, throughout up to the 1950s. I mean, don't forget there was a revolution in Cuba in 1933 as well, uh, which led to what's known as the 100-day government. Um, so that that vision, some revolutionaries in Cuba and, and independence fighters have, have integrated that, and that's that gives the deep historical roots of Cuban anti-imperialism. So... Um, yeah, so I think in a sense we can say that the the revolution, um, the the revolutionary state that emerges after 1959 takes that strand from Marti is inherently anti-imperialist. It sees that for Cuba to be a sovereign nation, and and this is the other core aspect, the core demand at the heart of the Cuban Revolution, to uh, prioritize social justice then it needs to take a a position against US imperialism to defend its sovereignty, essentially. So that's um, really important. Also, US domination of Cuba is is associated with the opposite of social justice, with the exploitation um, and discrimination, the embedded uh, institutional racism and so on that 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 period of Cuban history um, demonstrated. So and what what do we see today? We can still see that the predominant view within Cuba is very much this anti-imperialist uh, attitude towards the United States, which I think it's really important to emphasize does not translate into anti-Americanism. Cubans regard themselves um, as Americans in the sense that, you know, the whole continent is the, the Americas. And Jose Marti talked about Nuestra America, our America, although he he counterposed that to North America, to the uh, um, ambitions of imperialist North America. But the point is that, you know, um, most Cubans have relatives in the United States and the aminosity is not 
on the level of hating Americans. It is um, a defensive position against US establishments, um, which have, you know, spent millions and uh, strategized for 62 years about how to get rid of uh, the Cuban government. On the other hand, what you still see in Miami is the um, the continuation of those other interpretations, right? Those who want Cuba to be essentially, uh, maybe not now formally uh, part of the United States of America, but very much embedded into the US uh, sphere of, of interest and, and um, under US domination again. And, and, and that is um, being increasingly clearly articulated by uh, Cubans in, you know, the, the pro-Trump Cubans in Miami. Okay, let's take a quick break. If you're listening to the free audio, enjoy the music. If you're on Counterpunch Plus, we'll be back in just a few seconds. are back chatting with Helen Yaffe. Get yourself a copy of the book, We Are Cuba, How a Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. It is fascinating. This is, I mean, this is one of the things that we on the left have been watching for a long time and take great pride in is understanding how Cuba and the resolve that Cuba has shown in the face of imperialism, as we were just discussing before the break. Helen, let me talk a little bit about the blockade because it figures so centrally in everything that has happened for decades and decades with regard to Cuba. Can you tell us the story of this blockade, how the blockade happened, and then maybe a little bit about how it's evolved and most importantly, some of the concrete and material ways in which it has hampered Cuban development. 
and or maybe even inspired other ways of development, let's say. Yeah, because it's done both of those things. Um, yeah, so the, um, the, the US blockade uh, sanctions has to be understood as one tool in the toolkit of the United States to um, achieve regime change in Cuba. Um, so it becomes very clear the documentation is, you know, has been out, uh, exposed that already by the end of 1959, the U.S. establishment, whether it's the CIA, the State Department, has um, decided that they can't tolerate the new revolutionary government in Cuba and, and they have to get rid of it. So um, 1959. So in, um, you know, so then they go about looking at, at ways to dismantle the, the new government to stop it settling and institutionalizing and so on. What what you have is by 1960 a conclusion, and this is articulated in the famous um, memorandum by Lester Mallory, 6th of April 1960. He says, look, the Castro is too popular. He has the support of the vast majority of Cubans. Um, it's clear that communist influence in the Cuban new Cuban government is increasing. Uh, sending in external forces is going to be rejected, although they did that and it it uh, was defeated, as we know. It was the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, so what we need to do is use all of the means at our disposal to um, dis to enact a deterioration of the economic situation. In other words, we need to create hardship, economic hardship. So um, the, the final conclusion, the words he uses to create hunger, desperation and overthrow of government. So this has been the, uh, let's call it two track tactic of the United States towards Cuba to use mechanisms to achieve economic asphyxiation. And that is the role of sanctions and the US blockade. And at the same time, to try and exploit the consequences of that, so the hardship that Cubans are suffering in order to foster and promote an internal opposition that would not have existed otherwise. Um, so that's been the attention of the US blockade. I mean, what happened is the in the early days, you had that tit-for-tat situation where... Um, it started, well, it started, I mean, you can never work out where it quite started, but, you know, it, very significantly, this, the US government told the oil refineries not to refine Soviet oil. That was on the way that the Cubans were importing and the Cubans responded by nationalizing the oil industry. And so this sort of tit for tat went on and on. Um, subsequently, I mean, what's really important about uh, Mallory's memorandum is it um, exposes a few myths about the US blockade, US sanctions. First, that they are a punishment for the nationalizations, because the document by Mallory happens before the mass nationalizations of, of US businesses and interests. Um, and secondly, it shows that the human rights of Cubans is not on the radar. There's no mention in that um, you know, to, to, to propose a policy of creating hunger and desperation it clearly exposes the myth that you're concerned about human rights. So um, that this is, you know, the, the US, people talk about the blockade, but actually it's a set of about six very, very complex, overlapping, sometimes contradictory uh, pieces of legislation. I've just written a, a book chapter about it. There's a new book called Sanctions as War, and I've written a chapter on the US blockade. So I've been looking into, you know, the process of um, <coughs> augmenting 
the blockade. So uh, initially, it, it's um, eliminating or targeting trade between the United States and Cuba, but gradually it becomes more and more extraterritorial. So by 1992, the uh, Torricelli Act, it's very significant that it's extraterritorial. Why? The Soviet bloc has collapsed. As we said at the beginning, Cuba's lost its main trading partner. Only 10% of Cuba's international trade is carried out outside of that socialist bloc and with the USSR and the other countries of Eastern Europe. So um, at this point, Cuba faces this incredible challenge. On the one hand, they declare we're, we're going to stay as a socialist country. But on the other hand, they have to integrate into an, an international market, a global economy, which is now dominated by capitalism in the era of neoliberalism. So it's an incredibly complex uh, process. The, the Cuban economy is almost entirely restructured to go from being an exporter of uh, goods, sugar, to being um, an exporter of services, that is tourism and then medical uh, medical professional services. So um, at, at this point, when Cuba has to integrate with the rest of the world, the United States sanctions take on the nature of becoming extraterritorial. And what we mean by that is that this is U- this is U.S. domestic law, but it starts to impose itself on Cuba's trade on on other domestic uh, laws and transactions. So it imposes it. It tries to interrupt Cuba's capacity to trade with the rest of the world. How does it do that? It says, for example, that any piece of equipment or uh, machinery, whatever it is, produced anywhere in the world, if it has more than ten percent of its components made by a US company, then it cannot be sold to Cuba. It also says that any ship that docks in Cuba for the purposes of carrying out trade cannot dock in the United States for six months after. It uses the leverage that the United States has over the US dollar. The US dollar dominates international trade. So in according to the Wall Street Journal, in 2019, 88% of in all international transactions were carried out in the dollar. The US uh, has leverage over con- and control over what can, uh, can be done with the US dollar. So it has simply said, particularly in the recent period and, and under the Trump sanctions, which I hope we'll talk about um, in more, with more focus, it has said that banks cannot transact with Cuba when they're using the US dollar. So, I mean, it is incredible um, asphyxiation of Cuba. We've already talked about Cuba needing to import a large proportion of its food. But even beyond that, I mean, Cuba is a small island nation. Small island nations are dependent um, on on exchange and and uh, trade with with other countries and so it has um the sanctions have taken on this character of being of blocking cuba's capacity to trade with individuals and entities who want to trade with cuba who who will benefit from trade with cuba and this affects by the way cuba's exports in um medical science so biotechnology uh, all sorts of things that Cuba has that are bene- would be beneficial for populations around the world that are blocked by these sanctions that have been in place for uh, 60 years. 
recent years, there was a lot of talk about the U.S. normalizing with Cuba steps by the Obama administration towards so-called normalization. Suppose that's debatable whether that's actually what was happening. But besides, you know, that's beside the point. Um, where do we stand now in this uh, bizarre dystopian post-Trump period that we now live through? What did Trump do, or rather, what did Obama introduce? What did Trump do as a reaction to that? And where do we stand now? Yeah, so I think it's worth remembering and not not being sort of nostalgic for, you know, Obama who finally saw sense uh, kind of interpretation. Obama did nothing for six years. So Obama actually continued the rhetoric, um, you know, we'll punish Cuba as long as it abuses human rights. Uh, Cuba's not a democracy and all the rest of it. He he took a few small measures. He allowed the um, amount of remittances to increase or, or whatever. But um, he didn't move on Cuba until his final, what, two to three years. And essentially, um, in the first place, that was too little too soon. And secondly, none of the measures that he took had any sort of legal endurance. So they were executive decrees that he signed. He allowed a set of companies to engage with Cuba. He allowed some cruise ships. He allowed some chartered, uh, some airlines to do chartered flights. He allowed um, a couple, a, a few hotel companies. But Though, as, as Trump came out and said, when he went to Miami and he was looking for the Miami vote, he said everything that Obama did was with pre, pre, uh, presidential, you know, uh, executive, whatever, but privilege, and I can remove it and I will. And he did that. That's what um, Trump did. I mean, it's also interesting. The first six months of Trump's uh, presidency, he didn't move on Cuba. But then, you know, apparently... Um, Marco Rubio, these very powerful uh, Cuban-American politicians. I mean, they say Cuban-American, this is a second generation Cuban-American who's apparently never even visited Cuba, but has built a career um, on the basis of being anti-Cuban and trying to uh, bring down the Cuban regime, as he calls it. So, you know, complaints by them that they hadn't done enough. And then these people get themselves in, in key roles. So apparently he was um, you know, important in the Senate investigation of Russian interference in, in Trump's election campaign. So what Trump did was he did he took the same position as most US presidents and he delegated his Cuba policy to these this sort of sector of very right wing Cuban American politicians. And they went all out for Cuba. I mean, they they um, obviously associated Cuba very much with Venezuela and Bolivia, and they had um, taken an Ecuador, their measures had been taken in those countries to um, undermine or overthrow the left-wing governments. Um, they saw uh, Venezuela, Chavez, uh, Chavez, sorry, Maduro and the PSUV's survival in Venezuela, despite the millions being thrown at creating an internal opposition, uh, despite, you know, the announcement that Guaido was, was a new president and so on, they the fact that they survived in Venezuela, they blamed that on Cuba. Um, so the objective was really to to knock out, as they saw it, Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua. Um, so how did they do that? I mean, how do you take a set of sanctions, you know, six fundamental laws, very, very complex, comprehensive laws uh, that have been ongoing for six years? And how do you make that more intense? You know, um, I remember an interview with... Um, 
the the Cuban guy Cosio, who leads the the U.S. department in Cuba, and he's the interviewer said, Trump says, you know, if Cuba doesn't stop supporting Venezuela, then they're going to introduce more sanctions. And and Cosio said, well, they've had sanctions against us for sixty years. What more can they do? You know, and I sort of was in the same position, but they they had incredible punitive persecution of all of Cuba's workarounds. So how has Cuba managed to carry out international trade despite those things that I was talking about is use something called U-turn transactions in the international financial system. And those were identified and eliminated. Banks are now absolutely terrified to do any transaction with Cuba. It's almost impossible to send money to Cuba let alone trade with Cuba or invest in Cuba. And that has been the intention. You know, Cuba is, um, it's, they've come up with creative solutions. They've developed alliances with people who will help them to circumvent, circumvent the U.S. blockade for 60 years. But the Trump administration passed 242 new action sanctions and coercive measures, including, by the way, phoning up the president's of countries in Latin America that have requested Cuban medical assistance and threatening them and saying, you know, we 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 won't allow you to take on these Cubans because it's doing too much. It's first of all, it's um, where it's not the the Henry Reeve brigades, which are uh, usually emergency uh, medical um, assistance that's unpaid, but where it's the contracts, this has um, become the greatest source of revenue for Cuba. But they're saving lives all over the world and they're improving lives too. So, um, yeah, 243 coercive measures, over 50 of them since the pandemic began. So, when the United Nations and other international bodies were calling on countries like the United States that impose unilateral sanctions. In fact, all sanctions, they said, please stop all sanctions in the context of the pandemic that affect a country's ability to respond to the pandemic and to to provide the medical care and so on that is necessary. And the Trump administration increased sanctions at that point. And the impact of it was immediate and it was, um, you know, really exposes the utter hypocrisy of the United States establishment talking about its concern for human rights and welfare in Cuba. The first um, big piece of news was that Cuba could not import medical ventilators for its ICU units. Why? It had two ventilators. They came from a Swiss, uh, it had bought ventilators from two Swiss companies but they had been bought out by a US company. So they would no longer be able to sell to Cuba. Um, Cuba said, well, right, can we have spare parts for the ventilators we had? No, you can't have spare parts. So they couldn't even sell spare parts for medical ventilators in the context of a pandemic where, uh, which, had a, you know, which was killing people through respiratory disease. And um, secondly, now you know, they can't get hold of syringes. For similar reasons, so the syringe manufacturer globally is dominated by something like six companies that all have some link to the United States or U.S. markets or subsidiaries of, of companies that do. So you have this terrible agonizing dichotomy where Cuba is the only country in Latin America and the Caribbean to have produced its own vaccines for COVID-19, vaccines with a 90 plus percent efficacy three different vaccines they have now. They're about to start vaccinating children in Cuba. And 
at the same time, they have to appeal to the international solidarity movement for assistance in purchasing syringes and other, you know, pieces of, of medical equipment that are mass produced. In the time that we have remaining, um, I'm going to choke back my outrage at everything that you just said and ask a different question. Um, can you talk a little bit about this word reforms? Um, we hear a lot about how, well, Cuba was doing X and then they introduced some degree of reforms. And, you know, you hear various uh, iterations of that phrase, but it's often quite ambiguous what exactly that means. So can you talk a little bit about reforms, economic reforms and what reforms, quote unquote, have been introduced over recent years and what effects they've had? Yeah, so I mean, the the word reform is associated in sort of in the left with reformism and reformists, which indicates, uh, you know, reforming back towards capitalism, essentially. Um, so and, and, and I think at the start of the process initiated by Raul Castro, uh, particularly with the announcement of changes in the employment structure, there even the Cubans were um, referring to those as um, updating the system or adjusting the system. And, and that's what they were. Um, whereas there is a tendency from outside to say, well, these are reforms. In other words, you know, this is the embrace of capitalism. What I would caution is that none of these decisions, these policy decisions, can be understood, the motives, the intentions, the challenges they're supposed to um, overcome without contextualising those questions. So, for example, I just mentioned the employment, uh, changes to the employment structure. So at the point where this law was introduced, a tiny proportion of Cubans were working outside the state sector. And there are cooperatives, agricultural cooperatives that don't count as the state sector. Um, and there is a very there was a very small level, like 2.4 percent um, of Cubans were self-employed. But part, you know, what had happened is during the very difficult years of the special period, the Cuban state had taken the decision to keep people in employment. And it had done that to um, ensure that everyone had a minimum salary. And yes, the salary is very low. Although you can't uh, measure the salary against what people can access because so much of what Cubans get is fully or um, almost fully subsidized by the state. So it's not like, you know, in our countries to say, what's your salary? And with that salary, you have to purchase, you know, your basically everything that you need. In Cuba, it's not like that. But also um, employment has a political and social role in Cuba. It's how um, many people are integrated into political decision making. It's a, a, a social networks and so on. So they took the decision to keep Cubans in employment, despite the fact that some of them weren't producing because uh, during the special period, raw materials were not entering, machinery had broken down and they couldn't get spare parts. So you had a cycle of low productivity and low salaries. Now, from the 2000s and with the relationship with Venezuela, Chavez, the oil for doctors programs that many of your listeners will um, know about, uh, the economy started to improve. And Cuba actually had some quite impressive growth rates um, in around the sort of mid 2000s and going on. So it meant that they were in a better economic situation to start to tackle this problem of low productivity. Hence, you get 
after a long consultation, a national consultation with the population about the main problems and complaints that they have, something unprecedented, I think, that happens in Cuba with regular frequency, you get the decision to open up new, um, many more new forms of employment and to encourage people to leave the state sector where they are unproductive and yet paid for by the state to go and do productive work in not and other non-strategic areas. So from outside, um, it's seen from some elements of the left and from the right and from the medias, an embrace of capitalism because it's shifting people from the state sector to, to the non-state sector. But actually, it is trying to deal with this historic problem that, you know, is a problem of a socialist political economy, and that is the productivity of labour. So I try to go through all these different reforms that took place in the, um, I call them Raul Castro's reforms, in the Raul era. It's basically 10 years. Um, and I try to explain the problems that each of these measures were intended to resolve, the challenges that they faced in the process of implementation and what was achieved. Um, so, I mean, it's too much to sort of go through now, but they all had uh, a purpose for being introduced. And the purpose was not an ideological or political embrace of, of uh, markets. In fact, they were all very restrained within a certain uh, limit. And, you know, the, in fact, what I'm trying to show is that throughout the revolution, since 1959 or uh, maybe 61, um, the Cuban revolution has been incredibly flexible in the kind of policies that have been introduced to deal with problems that sometimes uh, internally imposed, sometimes externally imposed. Um, but they have had the capacity to have more opening to the market and then more closure and more return to the state and the, the um, increase in the state's uh, monopoly over trade and investment and uh, decision-making and so on. Um, and it swung, it's like a pendulum, it swung between those limits, but it's stuck within those limits, those limits that determine that Cuba has social, uh, socialist social relations. What's happening now is that the situation in Cuba is so difficult in terms of getting capital into Cuba and people, you know, say, oh, capital, that's capitalism. Capital means they need, you know, they need the resources to invest to up, update their worn out infrastructure and to actually make the improvements to the standard of living which Cuban people uh, require and need and, and really, quite frankly, deserve. So they, how do they get that capital? Well, because of this constant aggression from the United States, the two channels for getting money into the country that they've determined are the safest is foreign direct investment where they can negotiate um, under the radar, behind closed doors with uh, specific entities and businesses, um, and they negotiate very, very strict terms that defend, protect the environment, protect workers' conditions, and uh, so on. And the other is remittances. Now, in order to encourage remittances, they have promoted self-employment, because that is a, a form of getting money in, people sending money to their families who's setting up a small restaurant and whatever it is. Um, they have had to go further and further with this process of opening because they have faced such um, incredible restrictions. I mean, you know, the, the potential that this process of development, they have a development plan to 2030, its potential has, has been massively 
uh, hamstrung by by sanctions. You know, they've opened Mariel's special development zone. They had hundreds of companies lining up, putting in requests to do business. And it was, you know, high tech businesses, high skilled businesses. It was going to bring a lot of technology transfer to Cuba. Uh, it was going to um, really raise Cuba's technological capacity. And so on. Cuba has skilled workers that, you know, has an incredibly educated workforce. But this is also to an extent being scuppered by the sanctions imposed under Trump and continued and even augmented now by the Biden administration. We just have a couple of minutes left. And in that time, I want to just quickly ask you, before uh, we in the United States became enamored of the most recent shiny object on television, people were talking about protests in Cuba uh, several weeks ago. And I want to just ask you a little bit about the protests. Um, first of all, I, I say protests because I I don't know if I want to use the word protest movement because that would imply something else. But tell us a little bit about the recent upsurge of public protests in Cuba. Uh, I guess embedded in that is a couple of questions. Uh, number one, how related is it to the ongoing blockade? How related is it to COVID and the impacts of COVID on the economy and maybe on even on the social fabric? And then maybe you could also tell us a little bit about the COVID situation. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I try and answer that as concisely as possible. But they, these are all really big issues. And I'm trying to avoid sort of soundbite responses. Um, so in, in relation to the protests, they were, these protests happened in probably, I've heard an analyst say dozen cities. Um, they involved hundreds of people in, in each place. They were the first violent protests in 27 years, which you know, if you just look at any of Cuba's neighbours and the United States, you'll see how incredible that is. Uh, Cuba was really characterised by uh, social stability. The last protest which took place in 1994 during the special period was in one city. So these were qualitatively uh, much more significant. Um, however, they were... Um, I mean, I, I had written a report on the, an update on the situation in Cuba in, in June. And I'd said, you know, talking about this incredible hardships that the Cubans are living through. You know, Cubans are getting up at dawn every morning to join queues outside stores where the, the goods might not enter until 10 or 11. Right. So they're queuing for eight hours to get these goods. Um before going to do a full day's work or, or caring or whatever else it is. So the situation is quite unbearable, and yet the Cubans have borne it. And that's what I was saying in my report. They have shown incredible uh, endurance and patience, but we shouldn't be su surprised if there is a um, social explosion. What happened on the 11th of July is that finally, after millions invested, after uh, six decades of regime change programs, there was some result from um the this this dual track effort to have uh, to use political asphyxiation economic asphyxiation to create um an internal opposition but you know we also need to be clear about what was really going on there there are different there were different protesters there for different reasons on the one hand you know there was a lot of coordination from external forces as part of a uh, campaign directed, you know, through USAID and so on, uh, funding for regime change programs. And the social media war has been a big component of that. 
with YouTubers and, um, you know, and influencers, as they're called, they have been daily haranguing Cubans, get out on the street, protest, you know, and also there's been cases of um, people using YouTube to offer Cubans money to throw Molotov cocktails, to carry out arson, to assassinate police. You know, it's out there. It, it, the evidence is out there. They're offering Cubans phone credit to attack police officers in Cuba or to attack um, other people. So this has been going on for a long, long time. And, um, you know, it, they, they was a, they've had several pushes. There was, uh, you know, every now and then you have, you know, four people get together and shout uh, down with the dictatorship and it's filmed. You know, the most important thing is it's material for social media that gets circulated. Um, on that day, on the 11th of July, something happened. The spark happened because of the discontent. There were also people out there who who went out um, who have, you know, a record of uh, criminal activities and so on. And, you know, the, the Cuban government has been, you know, citing criminal records and so on. But there was also a lot of people out there who joined the protest because they are frustrated and angry about the situation. They're exhausted understandably about this um, hardship that has been externally imposed on the island. And yes, there are all sorts of internal problems with mis, uh, with you know bureaucracy and slowness and not carrying out decisions that have been made in relation to the reforms and so on and so forth. But um, we have to be clear that the level of external intervention we have to be clear about the level of external intervention in those protests. So some really interesting factors. The predominant slogans on those protests were abstract political demands, a bahola uh, down with the dictatorship, or um, swearing at the president. Um, we want freedom, country and life. But when people protest genuinely about their conditions, they tend to chant about the things that are affecting them. We want medicines, we want food. We're sick of cues. So that is a very interesting thing that uh, as, um, I've seen a Chilean an analyst go into this material. But also, the, you saw throughout these protests the re re repetitive um, presence of certain logos. Cuba decide. Cuba decides. That's the name of a US-funded um, organization based in Miami that is involved in promoting... Um, instability and regime change in Cuba. So why was this spo apparently spontaneous protest, but you had these pre-arranged symbols, uh, placards um, appearing at them? So there was some very, uh, you know, and then there's all the issues that have been analysed. I don't know how much has reached the US English language media, but about the Twitter campaign that led up to, um, to the protest. So there was a new media company was set up in June, and launched a hashtag SOS Cuba. Um, and on the day it launched the hashtag SOS Cuba, it received the Florida State certificate saying that it could get funding. So this is a media company, which apparently has been set up in order uh, with with funding as part of the regime change programs in order to use social media to try and help instigate internal protests in Cuba. Um, tweets like SOS Cuba that were going out from some um, Twitter handles, five uh, with retweets, five 
times the second. So clearly the use of, um, what do they call them, bots and troll farms and so on. So all of that automation of this message going out, geolocations on Twitter handles changed so they appeared to be in Cuba and so on. And then you had the incredible manipulation after the event, which I, I was more witness to. I was in Cuba on the 11th of July. I didn't see any protests. I was leaving the quarantine hotel because I'd arrived in Cuba five days earlier and had to quarantine. And I had um, gone to the the my home in Havana, where I stay, and um, I was watching the football, the um, England Euro finals because England was playing. And the announcement got interrupted by President Diaz Canal making an announcement. He informed the Cuban population that protests had taken place around the country, and they showed footage of him going to a place called San Antonio de, de los Baños, where the protests had turned violent. Um, and he had gone just like Fidel Castro had gone during that protest I mentioned in 1994. He'd gone straight to the scene. Miguel Diaz Canal did the same in San Antonio. And the, uh, they showed him talking to the population who were out in the streets. And he was recognizing that they are suffering at the moment, that there is a lot of hardship and times are hard. And he, But he was warning, do not allow your your um, legitimate views to be manipulated by an externally funded campaign. So then he'd gone on the television and he'd ended with this rousing speech saying the streets belong to the revolutionaries. And at that signal, thousands of Cubans had gone out in towns and cities throughout the country. They'd gone to key, um, key centers and squares and they were basically in support of the government and in support of socialism, opposing the US blockade and US interference. But in the following days, there was incredible manipulation of what had happened. For a start, many um, news outlets were circulating these photos of the protesters in support of the government and socialism and claiming that they were um, uh, anti-government protesters. There was even photos of from 2011, from the Malakon in Egypt, when tens of thousands of people had gone out to protest against the government, and it was circulated as if it was the Malakon in Havana, despite the fact that many people, if you zoomed in on the photo, had Egyptian flags, right? And um, the same happened with images. On the same day, Argentina had won the America's Cup. Thousands were out celebrating. They were circulated as images from Cuba. And um, people being uh, abused and bleeding from police attack in Spain over a protest to do with evictions, that was circulated. A few days later, I saw um, on the Wednesday, I saw a video that was circulated uh, and it was clearly in Cuba. It showed a police officer going into the home with a pistol. He had a, a pistol going into someone's home and then, um, you know, the a, a distressed mother with a child, they were going in to make an arrest. Then you heard shots and, the, and then it cut to an image of a pool of blood on the floor. Uh, I, even I was shocked. I was, whoa, that's not good. And then, you know, on the national news the next day, they showed the video. They showed it to the whole population. They showed uh, where how it had been circulated. When I saw it, it had been retweeted 34,000 times. But then they interviewed the man who was allegedly shot dead in his home and they showed footage of him being taken after he was arrested at his home, being taken in handcuffs to a police car, um, walking calmly. And then three days later, back in his home after he had been released um, after questioning. And he was saying, no, I'm, I'm alive. I'm here. I'm, I'm fine. You know, so incredible manipulation, which is not 
which is very much part of a plan and a strategy to um, create a consensus for what they're calling humanitarian intervention in Cuba. No one should be so naive and so ahistorical to believe in a humanitarian intervention in Cuba. You cannot do a humanitarian intervention when you are invading with an army or when you're doing what Miami mayor called for, uh, airstrikes on Cuba. He called for airstrikes on Cuba on the day of the protests. So, you know, that's that's what they're humanitarian. We know what it looks like. We saw it in Afghanistan 20 years down the line from a humanitarian intervention, you know, and people are desperate to get out. So, um, so yeah, so that those <laughs> that's covered a lot. That was the protest. I mean, I traveled around Cuba. I traveled around Havana extensively the next day. I just got out of quarantine. It was my first day. I needed to go to many different places. And I traveled everywhere, all over Havana in public transport and taxis. And I saw no violence, no protests at all. Um, it was calm. It was a tense calm. Yes, that's true. I know I heard subsequently that on one place on the edge of Havana, a violent protest took place in which one person was killed. Um, and police were attacked and civilians were attacked. The protests, I think most Cubans were horrified about how violent the protests were. Whatever they think about, um, you know, discontent with the government and the queues and and so on, uh, or the management of the, you know, the Cubans are not used to the kind of health crisis that the pandemic has has introduced for them. Cuba was um, managing the crisis phenomenally well, one among the best countries in the world. I actually made a documentary about this last year. It's available on YouTube. It's called Cuba and COVID-19, Public Health, Science and Solidarity. And it shows that, you know, by the end of 2020, only 140, slightly more um, people had died in the whole year in Cuba. And what's happened is they were forced for the economic circumstances to open their borders, which they knew from an epidemiological perspective was was not a great thing to do. They opened their borders. Lots of Cubans came back in from um, countries with very high incidence of COVID, the United States, Spain, all over. And um, community contagion has taken off. They've got the Delta variant, which is clearly highly contagious, and they've lost control of that community transmission. But what Cuba is going through this summer is what most countries have been through um, throughout the pandemic. Because you cannot organize, you cannot uh, prepare hospitals for the kind of surge in cases that, that you know, the, the Delta variant is bringing. And so a lot of people in Cuba are also um, shocked by the impact of the, of the pandemic on the island. They're shocked by having um, high numbers of deaths every day. They're definitely not used to that in Cuba. Um, so I think that the protests are partly a response to that. Um, but, you know, we just have to keep reminding people how the US sanctions has impaired Cuba's ability to respond to the pandemic. With the example I gave earlier of medical ventilators, they also have one energy um, oxygen plant which broke down, obviously from overuse, and they are really struggling They've had to use all of their economic reserves at a time when the U.S. has moved to eliminate all income and revenue to Cuba. They've used their reserves or, um, to to focus on an adequate response to COVID-19. 
Thank you for that. I've kept you well over the time. So I'm going to ask you for 30 second response to this final question. Uh, what is one thing that you would suggest for people who are listening, who are watching us? What is one thing you would suggest for people to do to show and to act in solidarity with the people of Cuba? What's a concrete thing that people in the United States or in Britain or elsewhere around the world can actually do to help Cubans? Um, I'm going to answer with two things, I'm afraid, <laughs> but short. One, get um, make a donation to the multiple campaigns that have been set up in the US, in Britain, around the world to help Cuba with its COVID-19 vaccination campaign. So to um, buy syringes, there's a Saving Lives campaign in the United States. Um, look them up um, and make a donation. That's some very practical assistance. Secondly, um, demand an end to US sanctions. They are suffocating and asphyxiating Cuba and, you know, particularly people in the United States, um, if they're not going to combat them, then they are also responsible. This is 60 years of efforts to strangle a country because it had the audacity to carry out a revolution and pursue its own sovereignty. Um, it's a violation of the UN um, endorsed right to self-determination. So uh, do that. Do that by joining the monthly protests, the caravanas. Um, that are happening all over the United States on the last Sunday of every month. Do that by demanding that your political representatives uh, take a position against the, the US blockade. Do it by any means that you can. And just be clear that what the United States is trying to do is distinguish maybe the last and best hope that we have that another world is possible. Helen Yaffe has been with us today on Counterpunch. She's a lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow. The book, We Are Cuba, How a Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. Please get yourself a copy. Get yourself two and give one to a friend. Helen, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch and chatting with us this morning. Thank you so much for the invitation. Listeners, viewers, thank you again for the continued support, and we will chat again real soon.